Hello and welcome to the Sheffield Libraries podcast. My name is Alexis. And I'm Dan. And our guest today is Janie Brown, a leader in oncology nursing and the author of a new book about how we find hope at the end of life. Janie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really happy to be with you. So you are the author of Radical Acts of Love, How We Find Hope at the End of Life. But before we begin discussing the book, can you tell us a bit about yourself and and your work? Mm. I'd love to. I mean, I'm originally from Glasgow, Scotland, so not that far away from you guys in Sheffield. Uh, And I um, went, started off at St. Andrews University studying uh, geography. I, I was really interested in that subject and I did a minor in psychology and ended up really, I didn't even really know what psychology was, but I knew it was something to do with people. So I got really involved in, and um, really liked that. And geography started to take less and less of a um, prominent role. So I ended up doing a master's in psychology there and then wanted to kind of travel the world and, and ended up thinking, well, nursing would be a useful um, profession. My mother was a nurse. So I went to Edinburgh for a couple of years and the Royal Infirmary there and did my nursing. And then first stop Canada, um, went to Vancouver. I had an aunt here and it was just one of those things that you just kind of, you, you drop into. And um, in the first part of my book, I talk about a patient that I, that I met when I was a student nurse. And it was one of those moments, I think we have these defining moments in our lives where mm. you just kind of feel there's a direction changing. And he was a young man, he was in his 40s, and uh, he had two young kids, and he was dying of leukemia. And I got kind of thrown into the situation as a student nurse where, you know, go and look after him for the night shift. And it was very stressful as a young nurse, um, because this, this guy was um, you know, pretty close to the end of his life, and but he was able to talk. And so I, it was one of those, you know, I, I realized that I had always been curious, I suppose, about the big questions in life. And, and this man showed me that, you know, even with this terminal diagnosis, you could actually, you know, talk your way and, and sort of think your way through that situation, because I certainly was of no help. I was standing with my back to the wall, kind of sweating and thinking, I have no idea what to say to this man. And I wasn't really taught how to do that. So that was a moment. And I think that sort of um, it happens to us where you sort of end up thinking, oh, there's something here. It was just, it really was one of those moments. And then um, I went to work at a hospital in Edinburgh after I finished and then moved to Canada and ended up working at the cancer center there for about 10 years and went back to university and got a master's in nursing, just really interested in uh, how families deal with cancer, you know, it kind of broadened from the person to the family and, and what happens to the kids and how do they cope. And I just got more and more interested in sort of the whole picture and the whole system. And that's what I did for, you know, over, yeah, quite a lot of years and then ended up developing, starting a nonprofit organization in Vancouver called the Kalanish Society. And it's to do with, um, we, in, we have people come on week long retreats actually to spend time just looking at, for the people who want to, not everybody wants to be introspective about cancer and end of life. And there's no, certainly no pressure uh, to do that. But the people who want to, I think, need a space. So that's what I figured fairly quickly, that there were some people 
And we have a lot of young adults with cancer who've got young kids and they have to figure out with a, you know, a, a difficult diagnosis, how on earth do you do that? And how do you prepare? So it just became more and more. So I've been running that organization for 25 years now and we've, we do retreats and then we have a center in Vancouver and it's a place that people can come and really do that kind of work. And I call it work because it is a lot of work and it's certainly not instinct, instinctive, I don't think to, to go deep into the fears and the worries and the sadness and the loss. But the people who want to do that and who do it, I think have, they really get some traction on this, what I think of as preparation. How do I tidy up my life, which is not, an, you know, especially when you're leaving it earlier than you should be. Uh, how do you actually do that and do it well and, and take care of the people we love? And so that's really what my life's work's been is helping people figure out how to do probably you know one of the most difficult things we have to do in life is to leave the people we love and do it you know and find some meaning in that so so your new book is called radical acts of love what can people expect from this book you mm. have read it well it's kind of a dis distillation of my work I think of 30 years and I think there comes a point in your career I think many of us were what you know what's it all been about and how would I articulate what I've been doing for all these years so what I wanted to do was distill the teachings that I feel I received I mean I feel I've learned everything I know from the people that I worked with and it's really something to try and then articulate so I, I picked 20 different perspectives really on how how to face the end of life and and so that you get a sense, I think, in the book that with 20 different views of that, that there isn't really one way. And I think that's one of the, the challenges these days is sort of there's a right way to do things. And, you know, we've kind of a perfectionist society in a way there's, you know, we have to enter in and, and that includes that phase of life. So I really wanted to show that it's um, that it's that there's a very unique way to do that. And it is very much based on there, there's a phrase that says we die as we've lived. And I actually do support that there's 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 a lot of ways that we enter into that end of life that's very true to who we are and so I I think that relieves a bit of pressure from people that there's you know things I have to do but I think the premise is also there's um you know I do have a belief that if we can open up in some ways and that means different things to different people and be able to face into I think this is true of every stage of life actually this is where I'm at right now and and try and look at it and think about it and of course when we do that we have a lot of feelings and that's one of the things we don't like <laughs> because we have an aversion to our emotions I mean we're really scared of our feelings so I think it takes a lot of courage to actually do that but what I've noticed is um, you know in these in these different stories and um, there's four sections the first one is sort of opening up and what happens when we do that and you know there's there's a lot of stories of people who figured out how to do that and what it means because I think the people around us really benefit from that I've met so many families who wish they had had those conversations and they never had them and they it becomes a regret for your whole life actually and then the second section is actually people who've it's kind of gone badly and I think I also wanted to say you know it's not it's not kind of tidy we don't can't, can't tie it up in a nice bow our life but and so how do people deal with that when things are unresolved because there's so many stories of where it didn't go that well and people feel guilty and feel regret and so there's a few of those stories because I think they're important and then there's a middle section which is a I think probably the most difficult part of the book, but the, I think also the most revealing in a way, because there are people who have 
what I think of as unfinished business in their life. They've had, say, a traumatic incident or they've had something very difficult happen early in life. And they just think that they just have to kind of go to their grave with that. I mean, I had one young woman say, you know, this awful thing happened to her when she was a child. And she just said, I, I don't want to leave this world having never really talked about that. So this is a section sort of unresolved griefs and hurts and things like that. So I wanted to give people hope that you actually can deal with the things of your life when you think you can't. So that's, that's a difficult section, I would say, but an important one. And then the last one's an interesting section, which is sort of about um, uh, what I've noticed for many people is that, you know, there's a, there's a way that we can feel supported, not just by the people in our world, but there's something that we can, um, and I would call it a larger view. And there's a lot of stories in that last section where nature, interestingly enough, is ends up being such a solace and a help for people in surprising ways. And I wanted to show in that section that there's really a um, there's unexpected things that happen because we're very frightened of the unknown. I mean, I think all of us are like, you know, we don't really like the unknown, but the unknown is also full of delight and it's full of surprises. And we always, we don't tend to think about that. And especially if you're dying, you're thinking, well, what, what's there to look forward to or what's going to happen that's meaningful or even light. And, but there are, and I wanted to show that to bring a balance that it's not tr all tragic and terrible and traumatic there's actually a way that you can go through that process that happens almost um, without, you know, in spite of you, um, that actually helps you along the way. So that's kind of a summary of the book. And I think the overall feeling from my perspective is two things, I suppose. I want the book to reassure people that death need not be a terrifying ordeal, especially, you know, from an illness or from cancer in this case. Because obviously, you know, with what we're living through right now, that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of very traumatic and difficult mm -hmm. things happening and deaths happening right now that I wouldn't put in that category because they're sudden and they're fast and they're out. There's a lot we can't control. Um, in When you're dying from an illness, there's some things you can control. So I wanted to reassure, and actually it's been really encouraging to hear. I've had people take that book and sort of sit at the bedside of their loved one, read it and feel reassured by it. And that's really was my goal that... Um, that you can see it in a larger way and that you know this is this is inevitable it's going to happen to all of us and what if we can take charge and so the second goal I suppose was to sort of re-empower people to say this is an important stage of life in birth we take all the time to prepare for birth and we get prenatal classes and we we think about it where we're going to be who we're going to have with us at death, we just think, well, we'll just wait and see because we want to avoid all the, you know, the horror of it and the and the, the sadness of it. So we don't prepare. And I don't think that serves us. So I, I want the book to show you that if you take the time, think about your own relationship with death, really think about it. What's what is it for you? Are you curious? Are you terrified? And then kind of work with that. And then I think it really makes a difference. It makes a difference to your own experience, but also to your family. And that's really, you know, those are the people who live on after and they're the people mm -hmm. who have to live with, you know, how it went. And those stories are so powerful and they're so um influential in our life if we've had a traumatic you may maybe either of you have had that but they kind of um, set up seeds for um, how we live after and I think that's very difficult actually for a lot of people if it hasn't if it's been you know not an easy experience or we haven't felt supported mm. through it so um, mm. really helpful 
Mm. And the things you said also about discussions. I mean, my mum had cancer and thankfully she was one of the people that, that is fine and help, help, touch wood, fit and healthy now. But we didn't talk about it nearly mm -hmm. enough. Um, mm -hmm. I did not know how to handle it and did not know how to have those conversations. Right. So I think that really struck me from the book. And, and I think I would have loved to have read your book um, at that time when we were going through that to kind of make mm. us have those conversations. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's I mean, it's deeply personal as well, isn't it? It's almost, I, mean, I guess it's 20 stories, it's 20 people that you have met, that you've had a, a real connection with. Um, so it's almost a biography in some ways, but it's, mm. um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's like a lifetime of of wisdom that is being passed on through the book mm. here and uh, it's a triumph I really do there are there are definitely stories in there which I found quite hard to read mm. that were seriously moving but I, I finished it feeling yeah hopeful and mm. and positive I mm. took something I think very healthy away from from that book oh thank you thank you both for that because I I think even the editor who ended up putting it forward to yeah. Canongate team um, she, Hannah knows. she said, you know, my, her grandmother had died fairly, you know, um, not long before she received this book from my agent. And she said the same thing, like, I did not want to read this book. So <laughs> it's kind of one of those, it's a bit of a challenge to, I think, for the people who really need a book like that, um, mm. at times when you don't know what to do, like, as you were describing me, a teenager and being kind of Absolutely. really. And the other thing um, you, you just mentioned about it being a memoir is interesting because there was a lot of conversation about where does this book fit and you know even in Amazon and like you can tell they're not quite sure where to put it you know is it a biography autobiography is it a and I and uh, one of my original writing mentors said well it's kind of like a quest it is your own it is your own um, sort of life story woven in but there was a lot of discussion when I was writing the book about how much of me should be in the book how much of the stories are central. And um, I have a wonderful uh, Cree and indigenous friend, Maureen, and she really helped me figure it out because she said in their tradition, there are what they call teaching stories, which kind of fit for me. So they're stories that, but I didn't want it to be a how-to book because that's not the kind of book I, re I read and I don't really relate to that well. You know, this is one to 10, <laughs> how to do this part of your life. Um, so it, it is interesting to sort of where to put the book and how to how to think of it. But I think it's a, it's a really mixed genre, actually. I think it is yeah. obviously partly autobiographical, but it's got these stories that I think are passing wisdom along. I think they're because one of the thoughts I had when I was thinking about writing it is like I felt it's a strange thing to say, but I felt all this wisdom that I was learning was being wasted. And that's a funny term, but it was like because it ends up with the families and then it's that's it. And it just disappears into I think so many books are like this. You know, there's something you want to capture, not just for the process of writing it, which was really interesting for me to do, but it's also for what these people can teach um, when they're gone. And because I, ha I sent stories to a lot of the families because I wanted, I didn't want them to be surprised. And uh, even if their family were giving me permission, I, you know, I wanted them to know this was coming. And it was really interesting hearing from them saying, you know, this means my loved one has, a, has a, their story in the world. I mean, it's very moving to me thinking about, you know, that that was, that was such a lovely thing to give the family as well, that this, that their loved one, you know, has, has an ongoing gift 
really to the world with what their story was, even if it was a very difficult story. Yeah. I got the impression as well from reading it that, I mean, the book is full of optimism and hope and hope. And you talk about how you give them this gift of your book, but it felt like every single person in that book gave you a gift and, mm-hmm. and influenced you in some way, uh, like Philip who encouraged you to do the, the cycling yeah. and, and Kirsten who encouraged you to write. And right, you know, everybody seems to give you something, however small or, or big in this book. And that's, that's right. was what was so lovely about it. I yeah. Felt. Yeah, because I think a lot of caregivers feel it's all going one way, mm-hmm. like you're caring for someone. But I think most people who, you know, who understand that reciprocity, really, that it isn't. And that's what keeps us motivated and keeps us in this work of service. I think all of us who are in service work feel, you know, what comes back isn't just a truly altru- altruistic thing to be of service it certainly has that element but it's also what you know how you grow and learn I think that's true for all of us you know who are working with the public in some way you know can you talk about nature because nature you know pops up throughout the book it seems to be um in connecting with nature seems to bring strength you you seem to take strength from nature and there are stories in there where where people that are dying have taken strength from nature. I wonder if we could maybe just discuss that a bit more. Mm. Well, it's wonderful now. There's a lot more research coming out about, you know, if you have a, a tree within your view, your health indicators are better. You know, your blood pressure is lower. That's <laughs> like, oh, wow. so, you know, there's some very interesting research on our relationship with nature now. But I think most of us understand it, actually, that there's, there's something. And I think some of us more than others, I'm very personally connected. I always have been. I remember as a little girl, you know, going out and seem, you know, seemingly having a conversation with a tiny little cherry tree in our backyard, which was about my height, you know. And I say now, like, that was like, friend you know like that little tree because I you know talked to the tree or whatever I did but I think that we you know I've I've seen this over the years that what do we draw how do we draw solace for ourselves and obviously we draw it from so many different sources you know I draw it too from poetry and literature and reading and but nature is so central um, for so many people and I think we've you know as a cult so many of our culture so much of our culture has separated ourselves out from that, the benefit of nature as a resource, like a really powerful resource. And, you know, it's amazing if you, if you just are in a bad state and you just literally go out for a walk, it shifts things. So it's a very, it's a functional thing, nature. It actually helps us change our state. And, um, and I love that about um, the, some of the stories in the book, you know, and again, there's a lot of serendipitous things that happened, which is what I'm quite interested about, you know, is nature coming toward us in some way? Or is it, you know, are we just relating to it? And I think we all have experiences in nature that, um, you know, it's like, the, just what is this? this is a relationship. And I suppose that's what I noticed. I mean, the, the lovely story of the young woman who was recovering from brain radiation after breast cancer and she was sitting in her office you probably remember the story and she mm. had a certain number of weeks to recover it was six weeks and this hummingbird suddenly appeared and this was I mean that's a beautiful thing like that was I just, loved that story it was just serendipitous but and then she watches this and she named this little bird wiki um and she watched it for six weeks and I think this making a nest, laying eggs is so, there's so much metaphor in that, you know, she was having to sit at home, not really able to do much. 
And then this bird, she watched this bird every day. It was really an amazing, it was like a little friend, you know, whatever you want to say, but it was more than that. It was actually helped her bide that time, which was so difficult for her. And literally almost the day, you know, there's the hummingbird takes off and <laughs> leaves the nest and she's kind of, you know, it really helped her so much. So nature is, um, personally in my life, it, it, I turn to nature and I, there's some places in the book that, um, where I'm talking to somebody and from the room, the counseling room that I use, I can see, I can see a tree, which again, it's, it's so helpful. Now they're saying, oh, research tells you it's helpful. Well, I know it's helpful um, because I draw on it somehow. I mean, the, and the cycles of life and death in nature are everywhere. You know, that's where little children start really their conversations about dying. You know, they see death, we see death everywhere and we see life everywhere. And the, and the metaphor of that is, I think, extremely helpful. Um, it was like the, the bike ride you mentioned, mm. um, Alexis, that, you know, where I ended up on a road bike to Worcester, which, you know, much to my surprise, ended amazing. up. Amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. But that's a mountain, that's 1,700 meters, you know, on yeah. a bike. And so, again, this metaphor of the mountain. And, um, you know, the, these couple of young people who were, you know, again, in treatment, stage four cancer, on a bike, going up a mountain is just incredibly, you know, and then you conquer the mountain. It is incredibly helpful to use these metaphors in our life. And so nature offers, again, so many teachings, I think, about how, you know, what can we draw from that? And trees especially. I mean, there's so many interesting how many books have been written about trees in the last year. <laughs> you know, again, that's interesting to me. But trees, of course, have this, you know, I think of them as having such a steady presence. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm not a tree hugger. Uh, trees are amazing, really, in terms of the weathering, you know, what they weather. I was, and um, so I find um, the natural world, uh, especially for people who become very interior during the process and are very, and they become very isolated. And of course, isolation is a huge thing that's happening right now for people where you don't, you can't have the connection. And if you're very ill, you know, that you don't, your friends are all working, especially if you're younger, you don't have the connection. It's certainly happening right now. There is something for us in those relationships with the natural world that sometimes we just don't think of that way, but mm. you know, you can discover it. The book's about healing, not curing, and they're, they're clearly different things. And maybe we can discuss that. But I wonder if part of that healing is kind of essential to that, to that healing is the connecting, because the book is also about connecting, whether it's with others or with it with art, using art to find some connection with nature or some kind of spirituality. There's it's sort of connected with something beyond ourselves, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't that? I mean, that's sort of an age-old question. What is that? You know, what is... And I, I suppose how I come at it is that um, there's some sense, I think, of the babies again. You know, I, I don't feel we're... I think we're... We have... I mean, not all... Ba not, no baby is the same, literally, not just physically or genetically. But we're born, we're born into our lives, really. And I, I don't want to put any religious land because I'm not religious in the traditional sense, but I do think there's some kind of essence that we have um, that, you know, we get to live it if we want to and figure out, well, what's my path without being, you know, cliched about that. I think we have, you know, if we have something to offer and have gifts, we all have 
different things we can do and different talents? Can we find what those are and can we live them? That to me is, is some, there's some recognition of a, a type of wholeness. Of course, healing comes from the word, you know, halen, which means whole. So if we think of the wholeness as being as already present, um, then our lives and our conditioning and our um, culture and everything, there are layers of experience that kind of mold us and shape us. Um, but if there's, a, if there's some sort of common thread of wholeness there, uh, I think it gets very hard to find when we're troubled. You know, and again, it's the steadiness, I would say. What's, how can I stand in my life? And I think that's actually partly about discovering who we are, like what, you know, and that's what I think that healing really is, is trying to reconnect with the essentials of our life. And that's partly what the retreats are. So when you have to go through really traumatic things and treatments and all of that, it sort of wears you away. It kind of erodes, you know, the sense of self. And that's not always a bad thing. I mean, it's interesting right now, some people are saying, well, this pandemic, I'm kind of you know, getting to know what's important to me and all of that stuff. But mostly it's trauma, mostly it's difficulty and challenge. That's how I would see it. But there's some sort of kernel in there, which to me is what people are, when you're reaching the end of your life, I think you're trying to make sense of your life, a lot of people. And there's so much about your life review, well, what's it been about, you know? And if you can say, well, I've kind of lived it the best I can, yes. I mean, there's no life that you'd ever say, there's no regret, I don't think. I've never met anyone who'd say, well, I would, shouldn't have taken that turn. <laughs> I did anyway, and I learned a lot. But um, so healing to me, you know, we're so obsessed with survival. I mean, that's really what the pandemic's all about, right? I mean, we really, really want to live. We're wired to live. We have a will to live. We have a survival instinct. It is so powerfully strong, right? So the trouble is at the end of life, it's not, you know, we can have it. We can have our will almost to the very end. And that's, those are the people who are fighting for their life. They will take more treatment, any treatment they can get. They talk to their families and say, I'm fighting, right? I mean, I have so many people. And that's to do with your will structure, which again is this sort of fight for survival. But healing has got really nothing to do with survival, really. You can wish for it and you can, there's nothing wrong with being hopeful right up until the end of your life that you might have a miracle. I mean, I've been working now long enough to say, well, that, I, I have to call that one a miracle. There are not many, but there are people who turn like surprisingly. Yeah back into life so, and that's I'm glad I can say that for real rather than just some fantasy about that's hope for a miracle but you know they're rare but there's so much can happen in that space of letting go of uh, the end point and our medicine our medical models are geared toward you know fighting and statistics and and really that's the the mandate of doctors is to you know is to save your life so it's very tricky when life turns and it happens for all of us, how we fit that into our system. And I think that's what healing does. It's like taking a larger view of that time in your life, that it's not all about fighting to live. It's actually about making sense and meaning of your life that you've had and the meaning of your life you're living now. I mean, the book is really staged between 
the point at which you know you have a terminal diagnosis and you're most likely going to die from that disease to the point of death. And that's to me the most interesting time. It's the most difficult time to sort of what I think of as living under the shadow of death in a way. But you're also this, this, there's this amazing opportunity to find healing and healing again has been misused and I think in sort of a new agey kind of way, which I don't really relate to, but I think that sense of this wholeness and, and, and it's interesting during the retreats, people come for six nights and have a, you know, we, we have a lot of different um, aspects to those retreats, but I think the real premise of the retreat is like coming back home, like what is, what is here and what have I forgotten? People come to retreats, I haven't had a good laugh. And I mean, the retreat is full of that because it's like, again, without sounding cliche, trying to find that part that got lost along the way. And for some people it gets lost very young, which is part of what that healing work in the book. And music's another thing. Some people, you know, mm -hmm. the kid loved music and dancing and then they just got serious and responsible and, and forgot who they were, you know, forgot, well, actually, I really like that. So part of healing is reclaiming ourself. And then in a way, and this might sound weird, I think death is, is possible to not be a hugely traumatic and difficult thing when it's related to having time, I would say. So the retreat people say is kind of the best kept secret. We just have a really, really good week together where we do some really hard work around fear and loss and family and things that are really difficult to talk about. And then there's just a really, there's a lot of music, there's massage therapy, there's art therapy, there's, there's a lot of things that we set up, what I think of as conditions for healing. I think there's universal conditions for healing, like, you know, fresh air, good food, things that we know, sleep, exercise, blah, blah, blah. But there's also unique conditions for healing. And I think that's what I'm interested in. Like, what would it be for you at the end of life? I think what you've just said confirms in my mind that this, this book, although it's centered around death, it's really a book about living and how to yes. live well. I think that's right. Yeah. So it's, again, you know, there's a lovely, you probably know, Irish poet, John O'Donoghue, mm -hmm. who's written some beautiful work. And he says, death comes out of the womb with you but everyone's too excited at your arrival to notice. And I just thought that's, I mean, really your first breath is the beginning, you know, where there will be a last breath. And I, again, it's quite powerful. And he talks about death being the, the silent companion to our life. And I think that is what you're saying. It's those two things, we separate death. Death is over there and please keep it over there. But actually, you know, it is in every breath. I mean, you, you see that with sudden deaths I and mean, this coronavirus suddenly you're in your life and suddenly you're not. And it's really scary. Mm. So can we work on fearlessness now? Can we work on our relationship with death now to make it less terrifying? I mean, not to say that that is, I mean, I don't, I think that's a tall order. I don't think yeah. we necessarily become fearless about death. Again, it's this instinct to survive. Fear is, is built in for a reason. And, you know, I, I value fear. If we ignore yeah. it, we can choose to ignore it, but it doesn't really serve us in the end. I mean, I really don't think it serves us in the end. Mm -hmm. There are an amazing number of people in their 80s and 90s who've never even thought about writing a will mm -hmm. and doing, making any preparations, advanced directives or anything. And, you know, it's sort of, um, I just think for your family, that's not really acceptable. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, we have young people who are having to leave children who are preparing. Yeah. I find it kind of, uh, and even people I know well, 
think that we can put death over there, which means I'm not thinking about it. And there's a superstition. If I think about it, somehow, am I giving it energy? Which is such a weird thought. That doesn't. Do you make think any there sense. are people who think about it too much? They will worry about it too much. Mm. Well, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I do meet a lot of people who think about it. Um, I would I would say too much in the sense that it's overtaken them. Mm. The fear has taken over. And I think it's become a, a real phobia and a real, it really is a trigger to anxiety. And when you look at those stories of those people's lives, um, I often ask, did you ever, ever have an experience where you almost died? And it's amazing how many people say they did, they almost drowned or they, so there's some people who have a, a, a kind of a trauma around death that um, they can identify, which is helpful because then it really is an anxiety that we need to work with. And there's a way to work with that. Um, but a lot of people are, are terrified because of what we know about death, the stories, you know, we, and we only see the traumatic stories, you know, on television or, so if you've never actually been around someone who's died in a peaceful way, I think everyone just assumes it's going to be horrible and terrible and traumatic. And, and the book, I think, shows you that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, the story of, of Dan, he had a, an elected death and I thought his approach to it was, as much about his family and supporting his family and friends and giving them the best memories of him and giving him them the, the tools to cope with it as much as mm -hmm. himself. And it was incredibly brave and incredibly kind. And I, I love mm -hmm. the, that story. I thought it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like, I like that story too, because it's a generous way mm -hmm. to be. Um, so, you know, what medical assistance in dying is legal in Canada. So that's been so since um, it'll be three years of summer and we, so it's people really do have a choice and they have mm -hmm. a choice to have an assisted death through a physician or a nurse practitioner. So it's really, really, you know, complex, I would say. So the story in the book about that is I wanted to show what I think of as a way to do it that isn't just about autonomy. Mm -hmm. I get to decide, which is so much our culture. He really waited until his family were all on board with him. And his father especially had a very hard time, as you can imagine. You know, a lot of people say, well, I just want you here no matter how sick you are. Yeah. And he's saying, well, I don't want to be here, you know, incredibly sick. He had had years and years of illness. Very, it's a powerful story, I think, as you said, of, mm -hmm. of care. And I suppose that's what the book really is so much about, that we're so all about ourselves. <laughs> And I think, you know, when we're sick, it, it so becomes because you have, you're the one who has to go through it. Yeah. You're the one who has to face the end of life. But, um, you know, really, if we can keep being, having a larger view that, you know, the way we are affects our world and affects each other, then I think we can go through even that um, with a feeling that we're, we're affecting people in a way that you know, will be with them for the rest of their lives, you know, so it's nice to think that interconnectedness is a real thing, you know, and I, I think even in that situation, he, oh, he just, he moved me so much. I mean, the way that he did that, I was just too. so yeah. incredibly touched by the way he'd come with his brother, that scene with his brother, where, you know, they wanted to really just honor their relationship as brothers. It was very moving. And and um, his family really appreciated that story being written in the book as well, because they have no regrets and they really feel that that was a very important choice for him to make. Not, it wouldn't be for everyone. Certainly there's a lot of people who are opposed to it, but I wanted to put a story in that is, is really about, you know, that 
possibility for the people who choose it that it can be it can have a very um, important effect on the people around you so and um, there's a wonderful teaching which is in the book it's a buddhist teaching i'm not a buddhist but i love some of their teachings and it's about uh, the qualities of the heart and I really love that because you know if once you're unable and don't have capacity in your physical life or your mental life you still have your heart and so mm. you still have a capacity to develop you know loving kindness patience care compassion generosity those are all things that you can still work on till the end of your life well, Janie, it's, it's been great talking to you. It's a beautiful book. It's powerful. It's, oh, it's full of wisdom. So mm. huge thanks for sharing it and uh, for oh, talking to us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. Yeah. I do love to talk about this because it feels, I mean, it's it has been my life, my life's work. So the opportunity to talk about it is just really lovely. Our guest today was author and oncology nurse, Janie Brown. You have been listening to the Sheffield Libraries podcast, the place to hear authors discuss their work, to explore stories, facts and fiction that we think deserve to be heard. I hope you'll join us again.